0: Um, We are going to be back in the book of Acts. Uh, So grateful last week for Matt Johnston, basically giving us an illustration of what it looks like to fulfill what the book of Acts calls us to. And so if you would, please open your Bibles back to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Acts according to the apostles. I want to begin uh, this morning by trying to uh, put a description out or, or put an illustration out of something that would have represented what happened very often in the early church, and, and maybe in pulling you in that description, you'll see how incredibly significant the portion of Scripture we're in today truly is. I want you to imagine this scene, okay? So just think with me for a second. Think about the scene I'm going to pull you into. Imagine the year is 62 A.D. So you're roughly 29 years after Jesus Christ had been crucified, rose from the grave, and ascended into heaven. So the year is 62. Let's imagine that you're in the year 62. You're a Roman citizen, and you're a new believer. You hear of the preaching of the gospel. You're a Gentile. That means you're just a non-Jew. And you hear about Christ and Him crucified and that He rose. You respond to the Gospel. You repent of your sins. You put your faith in the Messiah. You've trusted in Christ. He makes you born again. You find this little church in Rome. You start attending this little church. You're enjoying it. You're learning about the church. You're so grateful. You feel like you're being protected from false teaching. You're being equipped. You're learning. You couldn't be more grateful for all that God's doing. And You've got a friend of yours. Friends, also another young person, but he is an ethnic Jew. And his grandpa was actually there 30 years ago at the day of Pentecost. And his grandpa was one of the Jews that responded to the gospel and was saved. And then his grandpa preached to dad, and then dad preached to him. So he's grown up with a little bit of history, and he's also come to Christ. So you and your friend, you're both thrown together in this church. And you're talking one day and you say, we want to learn more about where we come from. We're hearing so much about what Christ calls us to do. We're learning about the church. We're seeing the gospel explode. Hostility is becoming more of a reality for us as we follow Christ. We need to know where we come from. Because if we're going to have the convictions we need to stand for, we need to know what it was like at the origin of the church. So you go down to your local church. We'll call it, you know... First Bible Church of Rome. <laughs> and you ask one of the pastors, Pastor, could we get some coffee together? We want to we wanna talk. We want to we wanna learn about the origin of where we come from. We want to understand how the church was born. So you ask that pastor, you say, Pastor, he sits down with you and you say, Okay, I know Christ was nailed to the cross. I know He was crucified. I know He rose. I know that at the day of Pentecost... The church was born. And I benefit from what's happened from Pentecost to now. And I look back to my Messiah, Jesus Christ, and I'm so grateful for Him. And I look forward to the coming kingdom when He's going to establish His earthly reign. But, Pastor, there's a little bit of my history that sometimes I don't always understand because from my understanding, between Jesus' death, crucifixion, and then His resurrection, from His resurrection to His ascension, There was 40 days. And the pastor would say, yeah, those were the 40 days that he taught the disciples about the kingdom. And he taught them about the kingdom that was not yet, and it was to come. And then that young man sitting with his friend, they might look at the pastor and say, yeah. But there was also another 10 days between Jesus going to heaven and the Spirit coming back down. The pastor would say, yeah. Yeah. That was the 10 days that the disciples and those early believers waited for Christ to send down the Spirit and the church to be born. And those young men might say to that pastor, could you help us understand about those 10 days? Because it seems to me that there was a group of believers during that time that were in a very unknown season where they were promised from Christ the Spirit's going to come and they didn't know it was coming and yet they seem like such devout people. Those were the disciples. Those were the early believers. And now I see believers spread about all through Asia Minor and all through Rome. But it seems like the nucleus was only 120. Imagine, that's like the size of this room. And so those, those young men say, Pastor, could you teach us about the ten days between Christ's ascension and the Spirit coming back? What was it like for the early believers as they awaited the day of Pentecost? day of Pentecost will be in the coming weeks, but that's the day when the Spirit comes down, saves all the Jews, the church is born, and we'll talk more about Pentecost, but Pentecost is basically a celebration 50 days after the Passover that the Jewish people would celebrate in remembrance of when God preserved them and saved them in Egypt. But these believers, during this 10 days, you've got to understand something. They would have said to this pastor, Pastor, they didn't know that it was just going to be 10 days. They were just there waiting. He'd say, yeah. They had incredible faith and incredible courage. And in fact, here's what I want to do for you boys. Let's imagine he'd say it's men. He'd say, why don't we go look at Luke's account in the book of Acts, and let's look at ten days like there's been no other. These are ten days that will never be repeated. They've never been this way before. Ten days that have never to happen again. He'd say to those boys, ten days like no other, that we see the early signs before the church was born. And I imagine that conversation would go like this. Let's look at that passage and then let's draw out some implications about how we should live in light of how faithful these 120 were. And so that's what I want to do today. I want to look at this remarkable time of 10 days like no other. 10 days between Christ going to heaven and the Spirit coming down. And then I want to draw some implications on what we should learn from these believers. Because, beloved, today we sit in this room... And we benefit from the faithfulness of these 120. Because these 120 held the line, waited, obeyed, submitted, prayed. God was faithful to His promise. He kept it. And then the church is born. And from Acts 2 to now, we're still living in the age called the church age where we benefit from the faithfulness of others. So if you want to lay it out, just if you're not familiar with the whole redemptive history, you've got kind of fall or creation... God's glory, the garden, man's falls, promises are made, man keeps sinning and rebelling, you go through the Old Testament, you've got patriarchs, you've got prophets, and then you go in the 400 years between the Old and New Testament, then Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus preaches the kingdoms to come, Israel doesn't repent, they reject him, then you've got Christ dying, Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection. And then you've got these 40 days and then these 10 days. So 40 days in the kingdom, 10 days we're going to look at today. And then you have this thing called the church. And the church is looking forward to the kingdom coming back and in the meantime, they look back to the suffering servant that died for them. So we've got one hand looking back on the Messiah that was killed and one hand on the other side looking forward to when he's going to come back. That's how we live today. What we look at today is how that all started. So we benefit from the faithfulness of ten days like no other. So let's read Acts 1, 12-26. And actually, rather than reading the whole thing, we're going to go through it. I'm going to read it as we work our way through it. But if you look at Acts 12-26 to and you want to mark it out in your mind, this is the final ten days between the ascension of Christ and the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes back. So, if you're taking notes, here's your outline. Luke shares four remarkable scenes in the ten days prior to the Spirit descending from heaven for the birth of the church. Four remarkable scenes. And each one of these scenes becomes very instructive for us. So I'm going to work through them and then we're going to revisit them at the end. Four remarkable scenes on this ten days like no other. Scene one. The disciples immediately obey Jesus and return to Jerusalem. And you'll see why this is significant. Look at verse 12. Then they, that is the disciples, watch this, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And you may look at that and think, okay Luke, that's a pretty basic detail. You've got some disciples. They were up with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. He ascends into heaven and they go to Jerusalem. But you've got to understand something. Them going to Jerusalem is perfect submission and complete obedience to the command that they were given. Look back at what Jesus told them. Notice, back in verse 4, gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised. You say, well, wait a second. I thought they're on the Mount of Olives and they're supposed to go back to Jerusalem. And he's telling them not to leave Jerusalem. Well, what he's describing is Jerusalem's a city and in the larger area of Jerusalem, you've got these other areas, like the Mount of Olives on the outside of the city. And so when he went up to... Heaven, they were on the Mount of Olives, so they have to go back to Jerusalem. But you got to understand, when they're going back to Jerusalem, they have one thing on their mind. Jesus told us to be in Jerusalem. For what? Notice, verse 5, chapter 1. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Look at this. Not many days from now. So verse 12 is picking that up. The disciples remembered Jesus had a singular command. Be in Jerusalem, because a time is coming when the permanent indwelling of my Spirit is going to come. Now notice what he says there in verse 12. Which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And you may think, why is Luke putting in all these details on geography? Well, Theophilus, if you remember, we've been talking about He was the recipient of this letter. If you're not familiar with Acts, Luke has written to a man named Theophilus. He was a Greek. So he's just giving him some geographical boundaries. But then you may say, why a Sabbath day's journey? Well, a Sabbath day's journey is just a way to describe about three quarters of a mile. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, back in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel would gather, they were not supposed to work on Sundays and not supposed to travel too far. So the law was written, you need to be within basically three quarters of a mile from the temple so you could be there on the Sabbath day. That became known as a Sabbath day's journey, three quarters of a mile. So he's just saying they were three quarters of a mile away and they needed to go back to town. So the first scene, if we just kind of stop for a second, Luke wants to document that the moment the disciples had the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to receive the Spirit, they obeyed without hesitation. I'll revisit that in a moment. We're going to come back to why their obedience was so significant even for us today. But let's look at scene 2. We'll revisit that in a moment. Scene 2 starts in verse 13. Upon arriving to Jerusalem, they head into the upper room. Notice verse 13. When they had entered in the city, they went up to the upper room. Now, when you hear upper room, immediately what do you start to think about? You think about... Probably the location where Jesus spent His final time right before His crucifixion with His disciples. We don't ultimately know if this was that exact room, but it seemed to be a location they knew about, and they seemed to be going there, and there probably there had to have been a believer that owned that house. And it must have been a massive house, because look at what it says. Go down a little bit in the passage. It says that 120 people were gathered there. Look at verse 15. At this time... We're going to get to this in a moment. Peter starts preaching a gathering of about 120 persons were there together. So here's what you have. You have perfect obedience. They go right down to Jerusalem. And the one place they go to is to gather with other believers. Now you have to ask yourself when you run into passages like this, why does Luke... Include all kinds of details like this, like they're going into this room, they're going into this house, and and all these kind of things that we would say, ah, these would be general things about it. Well, it's important to think about that when these disciples were waiting, remember, they didn't know when Christ was going to return. So all they, or when the Spirit was going to come, excuse me. So all they wanted to do was get to a location where they could start spending time together in prayer, in worship, in discipleship, and in preparation for the Spirit coming. You might even say it this way: the disciples were on task. They weren't going to deviate. They weren't going to go play on the on the palace hills. They weren't going to go anywhere else. They know they needed to get to town. They needed to get their location, and they needed to wait in preparation. And then I think this is fascinating because all of this is meant to encourage future believers. So you start thinking about, wow, believers throughout the book of Acts and even today, they'd look back and say, and this is unquestioning obedience. The thing Jesus said to go to Jerusalem, they did not hesitate. They went right there and they began to wait. And then here's what's interesting about this. He not only says they went to this location, to this large house, and we'll get to what they did there in a moment. But it's also interesting to think about this. He lists all of the disciples. So if the goal of this portion of Scripture is to encourage future believers for days and days to come, you've got Him showing their obedience, their absolute devotedness to get to where they needed to be. And rather than just saying the disciples went, He lists off the eleven. And I wonder if, if it wouldn't be an encouragement to us, and I wonder if in times of, of needing refreshment for the believers in the early church, if they wouldn't have spent time studying these early believers. Because we automatically think these guys must be the most courageous, the most bold, the most incredible men for God to use them. In fact, do you know that going into Jerusalem was a dangerous thing for them? Remember, these guys weren't the top end of society. Take Matthew for example. He was an extortionist. (laughs) He was a tax collector that stole money from people. Just coming back to town, people in Jerusalem would be like, Hey, you're a hypocrite. You stole money from me. Now you're following the Messiah. Actually, you still owe me money. I don't know what it would have been like. And then, coming back to town, to Jerusalem, these 11 that are left after Judas defected, they would have said, Hey, you're associated with the Messiah. We just killed him for his life and his message. So you just start to see that Luke's wanting all of the church to see these men were courageous. They were bold. But they were not extraordinary. In fact, a few of them were out front and extraordinary, and the rest of them just supported gospel ministry. So if you think about, even if you look at these, I'm going to go through their names, and you think, well, I just don't know how I could be used by the Lord. I feel like other people are out front. I'm just behind the scenes. How could the Lord use me? Just listen to the eleven. And listen to what they come from, some of them. God used these 11 confused men and another 109 or so to birth a church that literally transformed Europe. This is encouraging. So let's look at them. They're here in the upper room, complete obedience. They've come together. And in this second scene, He documents them. Notice the first one. Peter. What do we know about Peter? He's the rock. He's the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. He's the one I most resemble. (laughs) (laughs) He too often speaks without thinking. He feared man and had the moment three times where he did not defend his Messiah and said he didn't know him. He was a fisherman. Did you know Jesus that Peter was married? And even in all of that, Jesus called him the rock. He called him Cephas. The, the, the language to describe one of strength. In Greek it means the rock. He was fortified. And he tells Peter, I'm going to build the church on the back of you. So he was there. John, he was a fisherman as well from Bethsaida. He was one of the sons of Zebedee. You know what he was known for? Being overly confident and maybe a bit of a fighter, right? Him and his brother right, were the sons of thunder. They got ahead of themselves. Jesus, strike these people down. Jesus, do this. Jesus, let's take the kingdom by force. Some of you may relate to that. Being a little too aggressive. A little too out front. Run over people with your speech. They were here. James was here. John was here. You might even say that these two were the hot-tempered ones of the eleven remaining. You think, man, God could even use me even when I'm... Sometimes too quick to anger. Certainly he can. He gets a hold of you. James, the next one, so James and John, he was killed eight years after this moment. Think about that. The early church would have read about the faithfulness of James and then they would have said, and remember in Acts 12, they would have said, remember in the middle of Acts when Luke documents when James was executed by Herod Agrippa. So immediately you're seeing the early churches looking back and going, the roots of the church and what we were built upon was men that were not extraordinary, but men that were faithful. And then there's Andrew. Some of you may really relate in here. He was timid. He was Peter's brother. He was a fisherman. He lacked courage. He always wanted someone else to go with him because he never wanted to be exposed. He always wanted to partner with him. So if we're going to do this, I'm not going down alone. We're either going this together or that we're not letting this happen. You don't see Andrew show up much out front, do you? He's always behind the scenes. He's always supporting. And he just wants to see ministry go forth, but he definitely doesn't want to be the one up front. Many of you are going, I'm Andrew. That's me. Then there's Philip. He seemed to be a good teacher. But he played a support role. From Bethsaida as well. Same as Peter, Andrew, John, and James. Then there's Thomas. What do we know about Thomas? Man, easily discouraged. And yet, when... Thomas was rebuked by Jesus, he became shattered over his sin. Prone to stumble, prone to fall all over himself, but man, quick to repent, we might say. And he had to get owned on the pages of Scripture, and that would have been on his mind all his days. God used him. Bartholomew, we know a little about him. He's a behind-the-scenes disciple, supports the ministry of other men. Probably slower to speak, we could infer from that. And there's Matthew, the tax collector, dishonest, Exhorted money from people. Do you know what's interesting about Matthew? Matthew probably had the most tainted, wicked, ungodly past of all the disciples. And do you know who the Gospels spend the most time talking about his conversion? The most ink is spilled on Matthew's conversion. How encouraging to let those of us that come from wicked backgrounds know God even used Matthew. Now you're starting to see that as this starts to spread out through the early church, coffee shops around Rome and Philippi and Ephesus and wherever would have started talking about don't forget the eleven. Don't forget their obedience. Don't forget that they were in the upper room. Don't forget how obedient they were to the Lord even though they were so unimpressive in so many ways. And you've got James, the son of Alphaeus, called James the Younger. That's the kind of language. You don't know a lot about him. Happy to support ministry behind the scenes. And then I love this one. This may be some of you in here. Simon the Zealot. The title is important. You know what a zealot was? They were basically a social gospel group. <laughs> a zealot was a nationalist who wanted to engage in activities that had a resistance to Rome. So he was the one that said, Give me the sign. I'll pick it. I'll climb the stairs. I'll take the hill. Whatever i got to do, I'll take anybody down. And he was all about social causes and social action and transforming the culture and getting Rome to stop being so oppressive. And God took all that and wrapped it up in to usefulness for gospel ministry to see the church be born. And then you've got Judas, the son of James. This is not Judas Iscariot different from Judas Iscariot. You know what's interesting about him? He's a question asker. Some of you are this way. You've always got questions on your mind. He seems to indicate from John 14 he's just got a lot of things on his mind and he seemed pretty teachable. But he was reluctant to come to his convictions. He wanted to really think things through. God grabbed him and used him. So I mean, I think you can all see that Immediately this is meant to encourage every believer in every place in every local church that you had these faithful, obedient men that followed the Lord Jesus that were absolutely unimpressive by the world standard and Asia is about to be transformed by these 11 unimpressive men. And a room this size is about to be what God uses to see the gospel go across all of Europe. Now think about that. That's so different from our pragmatic church today, right? The pragmatic church says big numbers, big success, big people, big things, big smoke, big likes. That equals faithfulness. This seems to document obedience, submission to the Lord, unimpressive in nature, is who God uses because then what? He gets the glory. Pragmatism puts the glory. Pragmatism is I'll do whatever it takes to get what I want. Faithfulness says, I'm going to do what Jesus says and let Jesus do what He wants to do. So immediately you're going, wow, Luke. This is a lot of detail. Why? Because the church needed to be encouraged and to see these men during these ten days. Now, scene three. We're going to revisit all these in a moment. The eleven of the unimpressive ex-extortionists, (laughs) Ex-fishermen, unimpressive question askers who had little faith, and yet, don't write all that down, that's like Puritan. I'm going to give you the point. But I'm just telling you. These 11 gathered with another 110 to wait. They gathered with 110 to wait. Now you say, what's the big deal about that? How well do you do waiting on the Lord? How about when you have been look at the Scriptures like them, and there's a direct promise given, but they don't know what it's going to come? They don't know the outcome. Now think about your life. Some of the hardest things to do is trust God when you don't ultimately know what's going to come, right? You don't know the future. You don't know the outcome. All you've got to do is hang on right now with, with eyes of faith and say, Lord, I'll trust you. They didn't know it was going to be 10 days. They just knew a promise was given. The Spirit's coming. And so what do you do while you're waiting? This is so encouraging. They gather together with believers to wait. Notice verse 14 these all with one mind, what do you do while you're waiting? They were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with His brothers. Now stop for a second. You do not want to miss that detail. If anybody in the world could have disproved Christ was the Messiah, it certainly would have been His mom. He was a toddler that didn't sin. (laughs) <laughs> he said he was sinless and she never had to spank him when he was going to flip off the changing table she, he had perfect obedience think about that come here Jesus yes mom You know, Jesus go over there yes mom mom how can I serve I mean I don't know what it looked like but it was, <laughs> it was perfect obedience he says his mom's in the upper room evidence that proves he was who he said he was his mom would have been the first person to know if he was not the sinless Messiah am I right? and she's there and then what I love is Luke says, and guess who else was there? His brothers. Now of all the people that would want to reject the Messiah, it would be his brothers. We have an easy time not liking our siblings, don't we? Easy time discrediting our siblings, right? Oh, brother. Right? It's easy for us to have all pick all the things apart in them. We see all their weaknesses. Look at what he says there. The mother of Jesus, along with some women, so that may have been Mary Magdalene and some others, and then look at this. His brothers. And you know what John 7 verse 5 says? Jesus' brothers did not believe in Him during His ministry. So now you've got Jesus' brothers who have been born again, repented of their sin, and put their faith in their brother. That's impressive. You you know, someone in here may question the veracity of Scripture. Is Christ who really says He is? Is He really the Messiah? Well, His own family is here, and Luke is showing, if anyone could attest He was not who He said He was, it would be His family. And his brothers have come to Christ. And his mom continues to affirm who he is. I love that. And look at what they're doing. All of these people, these 120. They, with one mind, were devoting themselves to prayer. The idea of of one mind is to have one motive, one intention, one passion, one impulse. It's language to describe an intense, laborious, deliberate, focused time of prayer. And you say, well, they were there for ten days. Did they pray the whole time? Did you just sit there and pray for ten days? No, of course not. The language is describing this was just the the um, this was the this was the overflow of how they approached that waiting time. We're gonna see Peter preach in a moment. So there was preaching going on. Certainly there was discipleship. They had to eat meals together. They spent time together. They encouraged one another. They fellowshiped with one another. But when they thought about trusting God, when they thought about the Lord's promises, when they thought about who God was, they got together and in one mind they prayed. And I like that because it's instructive to us, right? When you have to wait, what should you be doing? (laughs) Praying? Obeying? Trusting the Lord? Waiting? But you say, well, what did they pray about? Right? If the question is they're here praying, what are they praying about for 10 days? Well, they know the Spirit's supposed to come, so they certainly would have been praying, Lord, make us ready. Make us humble. Make us dependent. Help us be looking and know exactly when you come so we can respond. They also knew that Jesus just preached to them 40 days on the kingdom that's not to come, and they're about to birth the early church. So they would have been saying, Lord, make us holy. Make us useful. Prepare us for evangelism. Prepare us for lost souls. Keep us sensitive. And they might even say, Lord, protect us from the evil one. People all around Jerusalem want to kill us. Keep us safe, Lord. Watch over us. We just want to be useful to you. Their prayers would have been of one impulse. How does God get more glory in our lives? And sometime in the middle of that, Peter steps up. Watch this. And he begins to pray. Preach In this scene of praying, of persistent prayer, of obedience, of waiting, Peter begins to preach. Notice verse 15. This sounds like a little familiar, doesn't it? You ever go to anywhere like that where there's discipleship, prayer, encouragement, make, breaking some bread together, and then someone teaches the Bible? You ever been anywhere like that? <laughs> sounds a little bit like the church and body life. Wow, we are innovative at Grace Emmanuel. At this time, the preacher stepped up. Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, verse 15, a gathering of about 120, and said, Brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Stop there. Peter's sermon that he wants to put into the hearts of these believers to give them courage, to prepare them for the church being bored, was one thing. Your God, when He speaks, is reliable. His Scripture is sufficient. It's authoritative. You don't need more than it. The Scripture needs to be fulfilled. Immediately what would have been in their minds is, the Word of God is reliable. We can trust it. Notice it again. Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. What filled Peter's preaching all through Acts? Preaching the Word of God. Man, you're seeing the early signs of a real church. Look at this. Which the Holy Spirit foretold. One pastor said, no clearer description of inspiration can be found anywhere in Scripture than that. The Holy Spirit foretold. Through who? The mouth of David. And you think, okay, what would he want to document right now? Well, he starts to talk about Judas. The one that defected. That ought to make you think, of all the things you could talk about right now, why was Judas on the docket for your first sermon? The defector, the betrayer, the one that abandoned his Messiah. Well, look at what he says. He says, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. And look at what it says of Judas. Look at this description. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was the one that walked the men over as the betrayer. That crucified the Messiah. And then look at what he says in verse 17. Don't tell me this would not have been a warning. All through the history of the church and the early church. For he was counted among us and received his share In ministry, think about this. He just said, Judas prayed with us, Judas ate meals with us, Judas went out and preached the kingdom gospel with us, Judas went on mission trips with us, Judas hung around us, Judas sat in prayer sessions with us, Judas got in discussions with Jesus, Judas was trusted with the money, Judas was the one that supposedly had the integrity, Judas was right along Jesus. That's what he's saying. It makes you sick when you think about that, doesn't it? That he was counted among them and received his share in ministry. He listened to his sermons and he betrayed him. Immediately, what do you say? You, you imagine if the goal of this is to make the church stand firm, then in all of those discipleship discussions and all of that teaching in the early church, they would have said things like, Remember Judas. Remember the one that betrayed the Messiah. Guard your heart. He loved the world. He loved ambition. He wanted his money. And it destroyed him. And look at what it says about him. He goes on. Now with this man acquired a field, speaking of Judas, with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle with his intestines gushing out. Now two things, if you know your New Testament pretty well, you go, well probably three, you go gross... (laughs) That's a really dis- really interesting description. His guts literally fell out of his stomach and his intestines blew out, is the language. But secondly, you're going to go, wait a second, Matthew 27 says that the chief priests purchased the field. Here it says Judas purchased the field. This is not a contradiction in scripture. Actually, Luke is documenting the ultimate agent behind it all. Notice, it wasn't his money that purchased the field. It was the price of his wickedness. It was his blood money and his betrayal money that he took from them that they ended up taking from him and buying the field with it. He's the ultimate agent of the wickedness and then they carried it out. And the second thing you go I should ask here is wasn't he didn't he hang himself? Why is it saying that his, literally his he falls down on his head and he bursts open in the middle and his intus, intestines gush out? Well, there's a lot of theories, but the, it gets hot and um, he probably could have hung there for a while. The branch could have snapped. He could have been over rocks. Someone may have cut him down. Whatever it was, God wanted to demonstrate through a grotesque uh, death the wickedness of Judas. And so he did hang himself, and then when he finally fell down, his insides exploded everywhere for all of everybody to see. Here's a spectacle of betrayal. Look at what he says there. So in their own language, they called it Hakaladama, that is, the field of blood. Every time people would walk by and say, That's the one that betrayed the Messiah. That's his field. That's where he died. And that's where the blood money went to. That's a cursed field. But here's what's interesting Judas is responsible, and the Old Testament speaks of his betrayal. And the Scripture actually represents that even though Judas was responsible, the Old Testament foretold that one would betray the Messiah and he'd need to be replaced. Let me say that again. The Old Testament foretold that one would betray the Messiah and he would need to be replaced. You say, why is it so important that the Scriptures need to be fulfilled? And secondly, why is it so important that he needs to be replaced? Well... Do you know that Jesus told His disciples in Matthew 19 that they are going to sit judging the twelve tribes of Israel? If there's not a twelfth, then there's not twelve disciples on the throne. And the apostles were promised to sit next to Jesus and reign over judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so the reason Peter's giving this sermon is he's saying, remember what Jesus said, to, you know, he would have said to Matthew, remember what Matthew documented about Jesus? Jesus promised that twelve men would sit and reign next to Him. And now we're missing one. And so in their minds, there could have been the threat. Did Jesus mess up? Did He misspeak? Is the Scripture not reliable? So He needs to say, No, the Scripture is reliable. What Jesus said is going to come true. There will be twelve. We need to replace Him. But also, He says, The Old Testament foretold of the defection. Notice verse 20. For it was written in the book of Psalms, Let His homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. And look at this. And let another man take his promise. His office, excuse me. If you want to jot those down, that's Psalm 69.25, Psalm 41.9, and Psalm 109.8. And here's what you should ask right there. Were those passages in the Psalms really speaking about Judas? Because those passages are about David. And they're about David having people very near and dear to him betray him. You say, well, why would he say the Scripture needs to be fulfilled when those passages were actually speaking about people trying to betray and ruin David? Because you've got to understand something about the Old Testament saint, okay? You've got to back out and just hang with me for a second. When the Old Testament saint would have read the Old Testament, or the New Testament Jew looking back, here's what they would have thought. The seed, that's the Messiah, was promised in Genesis 3. All through the Old Testament, you see the promised seed, which would one day be who we know as Jesus. But in his line, you have people like Solomon and David. And anytime someone tried to kill the seed, they viewed it as a full-out threat on the future Messiah. So, this will help you understand your Old Testament. Every time you see God preserving the people of Israel, He's preserving the people and He's preserving the promised line of the promised seed so that Jesus could come from the promised line that came in Genesis 3. Your whole Old Testament is God preserving the seed. So, when He's saying the scriptures fulfilled here, He's saying those Old Testament passages of people betraying David were a prefiguring looking forward that would be fully fulfilled when Judas tried to betray, or when Judas betrayed Jesus. So the Old Testament saints would have said, oh, that happened to David when they tried to kill him and he was in the line of Jesus. And then it's fully fulfilled because Judas did the same thing. So it was speaking, you could say it was speaking actually of David, but fully fulfilled because it represented trying to kill Jesus. So in David's time, you kill David, you stop the line of Jesus. You kill Jesus, you can supposedly stop what he's going to do. So that's why he says that here. And you think about that. That would have been an encouragement for those believers. Think about it. When you're in the early church and the church is starting to face difficulty and the church is starting to come under attack and your church is getting smaller because there's persecution and people are defecting, people would have said, is God going to keep His word? Is He going to maintain His promises? And they said, yeah, remember those ten days? Peter even documented Old Testament prophecies that came true. Remember Peter even documented why Jesus uh, wanted one disciple to be replaced so we would have twelve. God always keeps His word. would have been huge for them. So, that leads us to the fourth remarkable scene. Then we'll draw some quick implications. It's this. They chose someone to replace Judas as an apostle. It is necessary, he says, if we're going to replace an apostle, here's what an apostle needs to be. He had to have accompanied us all the time from the Lord Jesus, and he went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. So just a note... Modern day apostles, if you meet one, just go ahead and ask them, excuse me, wow, you have an incredible history. You must be really old. (laughs) Because when apostles were chosen, the criteria was, notice, they had to be with Jesus from the beginning of His baptism of John until the day He was taken up. From John's baptism to ascension, they had to be eyewitnesses. Wow, if someone's an apostle today, that is an impressive track record. Secondly, they had to be a witness of His resurrection. They had to be eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. So if someone says they're an apostle, you have to say, what was it like to meet Jesus? You met Him after He rose? What was that like? This isn't isn't some artificial thing. This is actual documentation of what Jesus would affirm as someone that could replace Judas. Notice, you had to be a witness of His resurrection. And then... They have this interesting scene here where they, they give those two criteria and then Christ, this is the third criteria, Christ has to choose them. And you may say, wait a second, I've got you, Paul. Paul was not there from the beginning of John's baptism until the Ascension. That's true, but Paul was also the missionary to the Gentiles and the apostle to the Gentiles, and these were the apostles to the Jews. So if you want to boil that down, you could at least say this. If someone is an apostle, they have to at least be able to say, I am a witness of the risen Christ, like Paul was on the Damascus road. And I was chosen by Christ personally when he called me. So at least two criteria. But So here's how they gather him. Notice how they call him. They put forward two men, Joseph called uh, Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Yes, Lord. You who know the hearts of all men. Look at that. Look how they talk about the Lord. The knower of every heart. That would be a literal translation. Show us which two you have chosen to occupy the ministry of apostleship. And then look at this. You think this is weird. They drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was asked to join the eleven apostles. Don't think gambling. Don't think throwing lots. Hey, let's just gamble and see which one comes into play. In the Old Testament, you can go look at different passages and in the New, Luke 1, Leviticus 16.8, Joshua 18, and then in Jonah, you see this casting of lots where they in some way they'd, they'd have two legitimate good options where God could bless both, and they'd you know, draw straws or whatever it is, they'd cast something out, and if the, fl- the coin flipped, whoever it went to, that's the one they would say, oh, that's the one God's behind. And you say... They did that in the Old Testament? Yeah. We don't have any documentation after this, but you say, well, that seems like man was a part of it. No. You've got two good options, and then they would have believed passages like the Proverbs, which said, I'm looking for my passage here, um, that, oh, here we go. Um, I think I took it out. Here it is. Got it. Proverbs 16.33 Which said, The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So they would have believed that. So our time's gone. That was the fourth scene. That's how the the twelfth disciple was chosen. So let's just back up. We've got four minutes. I'm supposed to do 15 minutes of implications. Mistake. Here's what I want you to document for yourself. Let's go back to that discipleship scene. Just tune in with me for a second. Hang in there. Back at the beginning, that pastor sits down with those, those young men. He sits down with them and he says, let's talk about ten days like no other. I just described it to you. What are four things we could draw, or four principles we could draw from what we saw in those first 120 that you could follow? One. They had perfect submission to Jesus' commands. Had the twelve not have obeyed, or the eleven, excuse me, had they have messed around in Palestine, then we might have an an unoccupied seat sitting over the twelve tribes of Israel. Their perfect obedience was used by the Lord to secure the future of the coming kingdom when they would reign over the twelve tribes. Perfect obedience. Second. They had unwavering entrustment to Scripture's reliability. They didn't question the Scripture. They didn't push back against the Scripture. They trusted it. They didn't question it. How rare is it today for you to meet people that just say, I take God at His word. I don't have to bend what He has made straight. I don't have to flex it. It's just what God says, and I trust it. These men and these women had an unwavering entrustment to the Scripture's reliability. Three, they had exemplary patience in God's timing. Beloved, I know it's hard to wait, but imagine them waiting for this fulfillment. They are a model of what it looks like to wait. If you want to draw that implication out, whether you're waiting for a job, whether you're waiting for a spouse, whether you're waiting for anything from the unknown, whether you're waiting for a family member to be saved, what you do in the meantime is what they modeled. You obey, you pray, you wait, and you trust your God for His timing. They modeled that. And then that comes this comes under that they had a single-minded persistent prayer. They didn't fret about Jerusalem, they didn't busy themselves, they didn't micromanage, they didn't try and manipulate the outcome they wanted. When they were waiting, they just prayed. And if you're anything like me, you don't pray like you should. And so all through the early years of the church, imagine those coffee shop scenes when they would go back and say, "Tell us about those 10 days." They'd say, "Look at what Jesus did. Look at the disciples. Look at the reliability of Scripture. Look at their prayer life. Look at their obedience. And those were the ones that God used to transform a nation. Ten days like no other. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for these ten days because while they're basic in so many senses, they're a great description for us of what faithfulness looks like when we're waiting. What do we do when we wait? And Lord, next week as we launch into Acts 2 and the church being born, we know that all of the saints in church history throughout the book of Acts and us too should look back and say, look at the perfect obedience. Look at the actual submission. Look at the trust in your word. Look at the prayer life. Look at them waiting. And Lord, we should never deviate from our roots because nothing's changed on how we should live today. So thank you for giving us this sweet little narrative that instructs our hearts and prepares us even to go in to hear 1 Corinthians 13 on how we can love in light of how we've been loved. In your name, amen. You're dismissed. Thanks, guys.